So what does Cavalu do after realizing her prisoner slash lover slash future husband has escaped? She strangles herself and dies. Oh, she decided that Juliet had a great idea and just offed herself. Yikes, girl. Well, Juliet's had, Juliet had an actual plan to pretend to die so they could, you know, That's right. escape the plans of their family. That was doing a disservice to Juliet. Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Aloha! If you've been following us on Twitter at From Enchanted and Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest, then you will know that we have swung high and low to find this tale for you. Oh, yes, we have. And we have gone so far from where we normally have gone. And I'm loving the weather here. I don't know about you, but I'm just enjoying the sun and the beach and just, ugh, I could be here forever. I love it. Our tale is a classic Hawaiian folktale, and we would love to open the conversation about Hawaiian oral traditions with any Hawaiian literature experts or natives who want to join us, as we are only two animal companions with microphones and the power of the internet. That being said, this story has many versions, and we have scoured many of them for consistency and accuracy. The main texts we will draw from are the three original translations by Abraham Fernander in 1918, J.S. Emerson in 1907, and William Drake Westervelt in 1915. We have also used the scholarship of Martha Beckwith and Thomas G. Thrum. If you know of any other translations or any other versions of this story, please contact us at any time. With that being said, it's time to dive deep into our story. Near the summit of Hualali on the island of Hawaii lived Hina and her son, the demigod Hika Ikanahili meaning Hiku of the forest. Hiku lived on the summit with just his mother, and for as long as he could remember, it had always been just the two of them. From a distance, he occasionally did hear the hula drums and happy voices, but his mother refused to let him go see. Now, eventually, Hiku did become a man, and could no longer be convinced to stay behind in their isolation. His mother had sensed that his mind was made up and allowed him to go, but advised that he should come back at a good time. I am actually super impressed with the mom in this situation that she was able to hold back her kid, a demigod. I don't know how she was able to hold back this kid for what, at least 18 years. Like, seriously, how do you hold back someone for that long? Like, especially when they're curious like that. It is interesting because she's able to do it for so long. And it's not as if he didn't know other people existed. He could hear them. And he knew that people were out there. So for him to be able to hear them and still stay behind for this long. Yeah. It does remind me of Perseus and how his mother made the him stay away from doing active things with the other boys as well. And that was a big thing for him. So when he was able to actually go and do a quest, he was so excited. And so much of it, I think, comes from the mothers knowing something bad's going to happen if their sons go out into the world. But you can't really stop them. Or even... uh. The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, she also was just held back for so many years. But I think it's a little bit different when it's a girl. Most of the time when guys are growing up, they seem to be held back for like noble reasons like that, where girls just need to be protected and they're frail. So, But it's still interesting to see that kind of contrast of you have a very powerful being who you think should have more freedom than you would suspect. But yet they're still being held back by the comforts of a mother. 
whom I think we've all experienced that before of of a guardian protecting you saying, no, we got to hold you back, got to protect you because you don't know what's out there yet. At this point, anyways, we can feel a connection with Hiku because I think we've all been there where you've wanted to go do something, but your parents have said, no, you can't do that yet. You're not old enough or you're not strong enough or whatever until eventually you do get to that point where you are old enough to kind of step away from them and say, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to explore. And they have to accept that and realize that you are your own person now and you can go and explore the world. I do want to talk about Higu's parentage for a moment because we have touched upon how his mom has kept him from the world for so long and how he is a demigod. Different translators give him different parents and this is of some significance if we are building a story about a demigod or a regular man. Some stories have him as a son of the god of war and prosperity, Ku, and the goddess Hina, who also had a daughter called Kevelu, who is going to be of some significance later part of the story. Still others only mention his demigod status without any reference to his father is. There are lots of different versions of this story, and we can only assume why there are so many inconsistencies. It could be a combination of translator errors, post-editing, adapting to Christian themes, and variations of the story being told. Edith Thornton did a comprehensive piece in 1984 for the Journal of the Polynesian Society that examines the different variations and compares them to a much older Maori story that covers the same theme. We will get into that during our five fantastic finds, so stick around for that at the end of the show. Regardless of who his parents are, Hiku just gives the regular assurances of yeah, mom, sure, as he grabs his faithful magic arrow and dashes off. As you do. His magic arrow was called Pwani and had many powers, including the ability to answer his call and to direct his journey with his flight. It's kind of like Thor's hammer, but more arrowy. Is it like Yondu's arrow from Guardians of the Galaxy? I think it must be. Where he just whistles and it just goes... Kind of. I think, I think he's able to communicate with the arrow and talk to it. So if he says, come here, the arrow will tell him where it is or show up. I, in my head, see it exactly like Yondu's arrow, where he whistles or he does something and the arrow flies around as epic music plays in the background. Now I'm just picturing uh, Hiku as Yondu. And just our image will not be undone. I now see Hiku as this blue being just talking a bit hick and just like. <laughs> oh, no. Now that's oh, in my head as well. beautiful. <laughs> yep, we're going with that. Does that mean Hiku is Mary Poppins? Hiku is Mary Poppins. He's also your daddy now. So as Yondu, or Hiku, travels down for his journey, he shoots his arrow three times. The first two times he shoots his arrows, they land on a hill and a waterhole respectively. But the third time he shoots the arrow, it travels to the chief of Kana's courtyard and lands at the feet of the fair princess Kavalu. The arrow is given some form of sentience or decision-making because in several versions, it is said that the arrow chose the princess specifically. I don't know how much this arrow has sentience because depending on the version of the story you read, the arrow seems to have the instinct with life. I don't really know what that means, but I think the arrow has some kind of decision-making capabilities and is able to decide the princess is who Hiku needs to be with. What if the arrow was just having an off day, like it hit a couple hills in a watering hole and it was getting tired and it really just meant to kill her? And then it would just it just failed like a little bit and now the arrow is going, oh no, no, don't end up with her. What are you doing? Dude, I had to kill her. Ah! I mean, I I don't know how much this arrow is like Yondu's arrow, where it's like a killing arrow, given that Hiku has lived in the forest with no other people for so long. But maybe, I mean, if if he's a hunter, 
it would make sense for the arrow to want to attack something. It's like Pongo from 101 Dalmatians. It's just looking to set someone up with its, it's master. Cupid's it's like Cupid's arrow. Yo. It's a little matchmaking it's arrow. It's Cupid's. Oh, no. We, we've talked about Cupid's arrow on that. That gets ugly, man. That does. And I think this will get ugly very quickly. Ooh. Spoilers. All right. Let's see how <laughs> ugly it can get. It's not going to be as straightforward. As the arrow lands at her feet, the princess falls in love with him and they live happily ever after. Like the arrow shoot straightforward, so that's how the story went, right? Right? <laughs> right? Yanji's arrow is never straightforward. <sighs> so the princess sees Hiku coming to retrieve his arrow and likes the look of him. So being flirty, she hides the arrow and challenges him to find it because we are in literally middle school at the moment. <laughs> Hiku having a magic, maybe sentient, Yandu-like arrow that answers his call just stood in front of her and called for his arrow in the most awkward game of Marco Polo ever. Well, it was probably awkward for the others around them because this just makes the princess fall even more in love with him. Really? And became determined to make him her husband. I don't understand how she's not embarrassed because this seems so middle school to me where like you hide something and the guy goes, oh, where's my pencil? And you're like, I don't know. Come get it. Or like you hold it above your head or something. It's just so much secondhand cringe. Yeah, it's cringe, and the first part I could get over, be like, okay, fine, you guys clearly have not matured past middle school, whatever. But then when he doesn't find it, and she finds that attractive, I would just be like, dude, what are you doing? You, you know like, what this you arrow a magic is. Arrow. <laughs> it's a magic arrow, and let's let's get to the next middle school game. What would the next middle school game be? Telling the guy... Telling your girlfriend that you like him and want to ask him out. So then she tells her friends and then she tells like her friends who happens to be guys. And then those guys tell other guys to eventually tell him that she is thinking of asking him out and that maybe he will ask her first or something. No one's seen him before. So he's like the new student that shows up and you're like, oh, my God. Hi. Who are you? Like, where'd you transfer from? And she's like, my name is Bella Swan and I hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh did you ever do that in middle school like try and do something to get a guy's attention be like ooh, flirty obviously like i feel like i have but it's just like i don't want to look back on it too much because i don't want any of those <laughs> repressed memories to come out and haunt me i've safely stowed them away somewhere but i think like i feel like everyone's done something super cringy to mm -hmm. either get the attention of a guy or pretended they were somehow so cool or you know, just all of that cringy, hormony mess that was middle school. But I mean, at least I relate to her because I feel like at some point I must have hidden someone's pencil or pencil case. I'm like, go look for it. Mm -hmm. But for the record, they have stated that he is an adult now. Depending on what you think of an adult, he has to at very minimum be like 16, I think. He's an adult that's never met anyone before. It's socially, I wonder what that's done to stunt his development. That's true. He's never spoken to another girl before. This is his first interaction. But she's clearly been around people before. I would think she got past this, but I guess not. I guess she's not grown out of that. Maybe she's only like 16 and 16 year olds are weird. Very weird. But they're fun weird. I remember being 16 and I thought I was super cool and it was lots of fun. Point exactly. You thought you were super cool. She probably thinks she's super cool. She's like, oh my god, I hit his arrow. And now he can like speak to it. Amazing. Don't know why I just used that voice. But because she's Hawaiian and 
that's not a Hawaiian accent. To be fair, I think we make fun of, we make a valley girl out of pretty much every princess at some point. (laughs) The valley girl voice is just the most fun voice to do. Well, I guess it's a good thing for her that he's never met another girl before because he was like, all right, I guess this is normal and okay that Mm -hmm. she's madly in love with me all of a sudden. She does keep him at her house for a couple of days, but when he decides to head home, she detains him by force. Oh. This is where things get a little bit interesting depending on which version you read. His motivations for leaving vary quite a bit. I mean, not that you need a reason to leave the house of someone who's holding you hostage. Yes, let's be clear about that. If you want to leave a place and someone's not letting you leave, that is not right. (laughs) Just putting that out there. Even if the reason you want to leave is as simple as there's a video game you want to play at home or you need to go eat dinner, whatever the reason, people should not keep you in their house by force. Here, here. We're going to just talk about Hiku's reasons because they are interesting. So in one version, he remembers the words of his mother and realizes that maybe his mother was keeping him away from all of the crazy chicks of the village. (laughs) So he ends up climbing out of the roof and escaping. In others, he just misses the mountains and the forest. And in a certain version, he is frustrated by the lack of sleepovers (gasps) and he decides to head home. So what does Cavellu do after realizing her prisoner slash lover slash future husband has escaped? She strangles herself and dies. Oh, she decided that Juliet had a great idea and just offed herself. Yikes, girl. Well, Juliet had an actual plan to pretend to die so they could, you know, escape the plans of their family. That was doing a disservice to Juliet. Yeah, Juliet had an actual plan. Yeah. So in some versions, Cavellu is not that sympathetic of a character. You see her as almost this young, naive girl who thinks she can keep Hiku in her house forever and make her her husband. In others, he does express some kind of affection for her. And she runs after him in the forest and he spurns her in the most dramatic and kind of cruel way by having vines and stuff hold her back and push her away from him physically. Which, I guess, if you're trying to escape someone who's keeping you hostage, is acceptable. She is a young girl, and this devastates her. So in the same vein of thought... But Daddy, I love him! Yes, the whole Daddy, I love him. She is rejected so forcefully and almost cruelly in some ways, and abandoned, ghosted, whichever way he does it. She takes it, and she commits suicide. Very sad. That's sad. It is, it is very sad. No. No, that, that is Don't rough. Don't put so much importance on boys. Especially not, specifically not boys you met six days ago. <sighs> boys you met six days ago should not be the basis of your entire life. No. Agreed. Agreed. It, like, at least if it was seven days, different story. But six days, come on. <laughs> <laughs> at least wait till the seventh day. At least wait till, like, you've seen him every day of the week. I wish uh, she thought a little bit more about it, considered her options just a little bit more, considered, you know, maybe going to college or something, get away, cut her hair, anything. Just like there was a lot of options, I felt like, before. She was a princess after all. Or do what everyone else does when they're having some kind of mental breakdown. Eat ice cream. Over a boy. Eat ice cream and dye your hair red. Yes. Those seem to be the two things that I have seen as like a common not trope, I guess. Well, actually, trope or example in teen movies, teen books. When you break up with someone and you are devastated at the age of 16, 17, 18, 
eat a bunch of ice cream and do something really crazy with your hair. Yes. Which all the power to you. I feel like that's just a way of showing that you can control something in your life because when it feels like everything has been swept out from under you and you're kind of lost on where to go, the things you can control are your body. And so people tend to do things either to modify their body mm-hmm. or to make it better. So that's why you see a lot of people going on fitness crazes after a breakup. You see them dyeing their hair, cutting their hair, getting either tattoos or piercings. It's because it's that lack of control, I think. And specifically when you're so young, as we said with The Little Mermaid, these things are just so much more important to you when mm-hmm. you're younger because they seem world-ending. Oh, yeah. And fairy tales as a whole tend to use lots of hyperboles and tropes, which is why we see Hiku being brought back by messengers, and he is devastated over his beloved's passing. Never mind that she was a kidnapper, and he probably has Stockholm Syndrome, the first girl he ever met. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, and he was an almost direct cause of her strangling yeah. herself, depending on which, reason you, on which version you read, because of the way he did it. Yeah. Um, but, you know... She's dead, and all of a sudden, he's like, oh my god, my lover is dead. What am I going to do? That's rough, buddy. It's a little bit inconsistent. (laughs) It is rough. But at least she didn't turn into the moon. Come on. I mean, that seems like a better, you know, because then if you turn into the moon, then you're continuing to do awesome stuff. You can always see them anytime. Be like, hey, there's the moon. That's my girlfriend. (laughs) Sokka didn't do anything to cause her to become the moon. No. Whereas in this case... Hiku leaving her in such a way did cause her to react in this dramatic way. Mm -hmm. So he is upset because the first girl he ever met and his first kidnapper did, you know, just commit suicide. And now all of the village is upset with him because, understandably, again, six days ago, everything was fine and now it's not. And it's mostly because of this random stranger that showed up. He decides to do. Let me go. Let me guess. Does he decide? to see a grief counselor and work through his emotions and just take all the necessary steps to uh, be able to move on with his life and everyone else to be able to move on with their lives. Nope, because moving on is for suckers in mythology. (laughs) He decides all he can do is go to the underworld and get her back because death is only an abstract concept. As one does in normal life. Okay, then. All right, we're going to the underworld how do you do that do you just like is there like a travel agency you can go to is it one of those things where you have to get on the black market or is there like more legal ways to do it in some bits we do see people conquering death or overcoming death in some way and one way they do that is by going to the underworld and bringing back a loved one which i think is has always been a strange concept to me because like if you can go to the underworld and bring back loved ones why isn't everyone trying to do that yeah I feel like if I was a minor character in a story and my loved one died, I would also try and go and get my loved one or tag along when the hero goes to get his loved one. It just seems like if it's, an, if it's a free-for-all, why isn't everyone trying it? But maybe it's a way to distinguish between heroes and the common folk is that the heroes are the ones who are willing to go and risk it all for these epic moments. And that's why they're the ones who can actually go into the underworld, convince you know, the gods of death to let them seek out and complete their quest. Whereas normal people just move on, go to therapy, you know? Like suckers, apparently. <laughs> Heroes are almost never all fully there. They do always have some kind of flaw about them that's pretty dramatic. And like we see with Hercules, we see with Odysseus, we see with Theseus. They just, they all have something that keeps them from being a fully recognized good person. Yeah. 
air quotes. Good person. Well, they're still heroes because of their other actions, but whether they're the best people or not, we'll see. Um, I don't know how I would describe Hiku at the moment because he is a hero of this story. Mm. But whether he's a romantic hero or an epic hero, I don't really know. So he decides to go to the underworld, booked his ticket. Yep. How is he planning on doing this? It's a little bit more complicated than just booking his airline ticket. He does have to actually plan his own journey himself. Ugh. The travel agencies were all very full. Rude. But to do this, he collects... Don't they know do he's this, a demigod? He lots of fines. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He is a demigod, yes. Do you even know um, who I am? Let me speak to your manager. <laughs> we don't have any time for Karens on this podcast. Even if it's just us pretending to be Karens. I don't know how he became a Karen in that moment, but okay. He was a valley girl a minute ago, so it's it's a journey. <laughs> oh my gosh. To plan his journey, he collects lots of vines and cuts a coconut shell cleanly in half. He also prepares himself to smell like a corpse and creates a mix of coconut oil and kakui oil. The others gagged as they loaded him up in their canoes, but they all went together to the area where the sea met the sky which is the entrance to the underworld abyss called the Lua Omilu. Once there, he sat on a swing made of the vines he collected, which is also called a coveli, and his friends lowered him down slowly. So, you travel to where the sky meets the sea. An incredible feat, by the way. That, that seems crazy. Uh, no big deal. You cover yourself in this horrid mixture and you smell so bad that your friends are gagging around you. And then they're just yep. lowering you down into the underworld on a swing. I, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a fun way to spend my Saturday. <laughs> you got everything correct, except the one thing I'm not quite sure about is so they go to this area on their canoes. Okay. To the area where the sea meets the sky, which is the horizon. The horizon. <laughs> so I'm I'm not sure if, if there's some kind of cave or something that they're over, but it does seem like they're lowering him down into the water. Which is like, so many I don't, questions. I'm not a big physics person, but I'm not quite sure how that would work. It, would it be a whirlpool again? Maybe, but then wouldn't the canoes also come down the whirlpool because you can't really. You can't stay afloat on top of a whirlpool. But then also, if he went, if it was going into water, then wouldn't the the mixture on him just wash off and he just kind of maybe float? I don't know how heavy he is. I, I'm just, I'm really trying to work this out. They'll clarify what he's going into. In my mind, it was like a whirlpool uh, with like a rock in the center or something like that. I guess I was thinking, I was still in The Little Mermaid. I was thinking the end of that movie where it had that whirlpool, but then there was a spot in the center that was still ground. This is actually breaking my brain a bit. I'm like, what is happening in this situation? <laughs> I'm sure they've kept it vague on purpose, or it might be that when the translators were collecting these stories, they didn't quite understand what the locals were saying. So they just kind of brushed past it? Well, a lot of these stories have, like, because it's an oral tradition, they get changed from people to people, from group to group, and as a whole, they're very different depending on where you are. And the actual location of the Underworld Abyss is not technically in the sea. Um, there are other places that it's attributed to, and we'll talk about that during the Five Fantastic Finds. But it might have been a translation error. It might have been just not fully understanding. It might just be because it's a folktale. 
some things are just the way they are because. I don't think it's, it's important to the story where it is. It's just interesting to us because looking back on it and trying to figure out the mental image you were trying to create, it's a little bit difficult to imagine lowering someone down into water on a swing. So far, really loving the story, loving the story beats, like the characters. Um, world building. It's, it could do better, you know? Love it. We'll come back to it more. But I think these translators, uh, they, they, they dropped the ball in this area. Not going to lie. I do think that I do think the translators dropped the ball in more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah. But... Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think we, we should be a bit sensitive to the fact that it is a local tale. That's true. And depending on where this where the storytellers were telling it, they might have gestured to an area. It might have just been a wide ranging area they mentioned and the translators just took it as is it could have also been that they it was a turn of phrase to say where the sky met the sea it does sound pretty it does sound very pretty but when reading stories that are not written by the actual people telling the story or reading translations of a story we're always sensitive to the fact that the story might be changed to a degree that makes it a bit incomprehensible to us Mm -hmm. Because generations and generations later, you know, years and years later, we are reading the story and we are reading what someone wrote about what someone else said in a different language and then edit it down to make sense and then very clearly edit it to make sense to a certain audience, which would have been to the English audience. So things may have been translated wrong. Phrases may have been taken verbatim as opposed to what they meant. So much of it is contextual and a big problem is when you read stories that are not written by the native peoples of who the stories belong to, so much of the story is taken and sanitized or taken and edited. And so we have no idea if what the story we're reading at the moment is correct. We just have to take what we have and work with it. Doesn't mean that we can't, you know, criticize a story for yeah. the way it's been written by whoever wrote it. Um, in this case, yeah, to be fair, we criticize across the board. <laughs> And we criticize across the board because this is a fun, you know, it's a fun podcast. It's a fun channel. And folk tales are meant to be, you know, they're supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be entertainment. And one thing about entertainment is that you're not always going to be 100% on board with everything and every part Mm -hmm. of a story. So we do this for fun. We read the stories for fun. And we have a great time reading the stories. Oh, yes. I would love someone to come on board or message us about the physics of how to lower someone down underwater. Break it down for us. Using a swing rope made of vines. And not get washed away of your stench. (laughs) Well, actually, I could see it if it is that they put rocks on the bottom of the swing first. Okay. And then when he's ready to go up, he cuts the rocks off. That would be one way to do it. I mean, oil and water don't mix, so I'm pretty sure the oil on him would be fine. Uh, maybe as a demigod, he doesn't need to breathe. That would be another thing. Maybe. So it's fun imagining how this works. Yeah. Put this on the How Stuff Works channel. Yeah, no kidding. Somehow he gets lowered into the underworld as one does. Yeah. Uh, what does he do from there? He comes to a cavern where all of the shades were gathered under the watchful eye of Milu, the ruler of Luau Milu. The shades were disgusted by his smell, you know, because (laughs) if dead people also hate the way you smell, there's something seriously wrong with you. If you take a shower, consider using some dove. Like, (laughs) it's like, well, I mean, kettle calling pot black, but dead people are telling him he smells really bad. 
shouldn't they have questioned it? If you smell that terrible, like if someone overdoes something, you usually question it, right? Like that's still different and weird. You think they would be like, excuse me, you smell like really, really bad even for us. Um, Care to explain? <laughs> I don't think he's trying to hide himself. I mean, he's coming in on a swing, he's smelling really bad, and he's a weird newcomer, so he's going to have lots of attention anyway. But I think in this way, he gets to monopolize the attention, and the way he does it is that he makes a big show of offering a ride on his swing to all the different shades. Would you say he came in like a wrecking ball? He came in like a wrecking ball, he came in swinging... And Kavalu notices him and gains permission from Milu to join him on the swing as well. In my favorite version of this story, he also offers a ride to Milu the ruler, and so everyone gets to go for a joyride. Yay! But back to Kavalu, our female love interest who are here to save. As they are swinging, Hiku signals his friends from above that they are ready to be pulled upwards. Kavalu's spirit realizes what's happening and attempts to descend once more but Hiku traps her spirit in his coconut shells and keeps her trapped until he reaches her body. That is some coconut shells. In one of the, in one of the texts I read, they describe the trapping of a soul in a coconut shell as a reference to how sorcerers capture souls when they try to escape in the form of a butterfly, because that is something that apparently happens. Of course. You know, souls, well, butterflies, no big. Well, Hiku must have known this because he brought the coconut shells in preparation for her trying to escape. So she had forced him to stay with him against his will, and now he is doing the same with her soul in these coconut shells. Is that what I got? Yes. Okay, yes. continue. Just, just making sure I got that right. <laughs> We've come full circle in terms of symbolism. Yep. He successfully captures her soul, heads up to his friends, and they hurry back to the village to find Cavelu's body. Once they're at her body, he makes a hole in the big toe of her left foot, and forces the spirit into the opening, trapping it once more in the dead body. Ew. He gives the dead body a massage, starting from the feet up to the heart, until he guides the soul up, and the heart begins to pump. The reason he starts from the toe is explained by the belief that a soul departs from the eyes, and the furthest point away from the eyes are the toes. So by gradually breathing life into her, he allows the spirit to find its way in on its own, and guides it to the right spot. If he had tried to send the spirit back in any other way, it would have found its way to the Luauhani, or door to the soul, which is where it's supposed to be departing from. So by starting from the toast, he's ensuring that she will come back to life in a proper way. She wakes up, and the first thing she says is, How could you be so cruel as to leave me? She had forgotten about her time in the afterworld, and had just remembered Hiku abandoning her. Everyone kind of glosses past all of the drama that happened, and they all celebrate and happily welcome back the fair Cavelu and Hiku the hero. Yay! Uh, how is her first thing not, dude, take a shower. You smell like death. <laughs> I would also think that if she woke up and the first thing she saw was her, you know, her lover or ex-lover, someone who she loved who abandoned her, covered in this weird oil, I think I would also be like, um... Am I dead because you smell like the dead? Maybe maybe you leaving me wasn't such a bad choice. Like, you you don't know hygiene. Again, spend more than a week with this person. <laughs> That's so much to ask. In fairy tales, we find someone. It's very... Honestly, I cannot be mad at it because 
dating is hard, finding people is hard, <laughs> romance is hard. So if you find someone who you are in love with the first three seconds of meeting them, you hold on to them and you don't let go because it gets harder from there. Okay, fair. Fair enough. Uh, dating, we have talked about, is hard, especially back then. You know, like messages, getting to each other was pretty tough and difficult. But still, like, just just a little bit. Like, people were gagging. I, like, just wash off, like, <laughs> wash it off a little bit, man. That's all I'm asking. Just, just a little bit. And to be fair, he just, he hasn't made the best impression anyway, so what's a, what's a bad physical impression as well? That's true. He could, you know, it could be just something you look past, I guess. Maybe she just can't smell, and that's fine. <laughs> She's lost her sense of smell. I would like to know more about how this actual process works, because he guides the soul into her heart, and then it starts beating again, but she has been decomposing for a little bit yeah so i wonder what that's done to her body or what it's done to her soul if it's her soul's damage if she ends up being the same i mean we see a lot of things about people who come back to life specifically in terms of maybe the resurrection stone in harry potter or as shades as people when they come back to life they aren't really themselves anymore because they've experienced death so it'd be interesting to see if there's another myth or another story that talks about people who come back to life and what they go through and if they really are the same person or if there's mm-hmm. something changed about them. When you go through any journey like that, I feel like you do change to some degree. So I feel like her soul has to be different, like whether she remembers it or not. Your soul must understand things have changed. Things are different. They might not be obvious, like subtle differences, but there has to be some understanding there. But at the same time, I think I'm more interested in the actual body part. I don't know how long they've she was dead for. Maybe if it was just like 24 hours, the body hasn't had a chance to decompose that much. So maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. But I don't know how long it took for them to get to the place where the sky meets the sea. It calls me. But no one knows how deep it goes. Continue. Theoretically, if they had kept her on ice or kept her frozen, we could make a case that it was fine. But maybe she also smells really, really bad. And so oh, yeah. all she's smelling is her own decomposed body and Hiku's weird smell. And so the rest of the village is like, everyone go toss them into the ocean so they can have a shower. But they, to them, they're like, oh my God, my lover is here. I'm in so in love. It's the pheromones. I'm so attracted to you right now, Hiku. And the mom is just never mentioned again in this story, which makes me feel really bad. Like, did she even know about any of this happening? Interestingly enough, in some versions, Kavelu and Hiku are brother and sister. And oh. the reason why they are kept apart is because when they were born, a prophecy was told about them that said they would have, you know, great sadness in their life. And so the parents made the choice, well, the mom made the choice to send the princess, uh, Kavelu, down into the village to be taken care of by priestesses and chiefs, and she raised Hiku in the forest away from her. And so the idea was that if they kept them away, maybe their fate would be changed, and obviously that didn't happen, and they aren't. They still had to go through the trouble. Wait, so they're siblings, and they're dating? Well, one of the reasons why I'm sure that's been changed is because when the translators probably took the story, they made it so it was sanitized and better for their audience. They changed the fact they were siblings. It wasn't a secret that back then, we, when we have myths in general about gods and goddesses, there's always some kind of incestuous things about them. Even if you just take a second to peek into any of the Greek gods, it's there. Yeah. The Hawaiian gods, it's there. 
the Mesopotamian gods. It's all over the place where they operate on a different set of rules than the rest of the people. Um, but also in some cultures and traditions, brothers and sisters of royal blood would marry to keep the blood pure and to keep the bloodline noble. And so it wasn't that strange or far off that if they were siblings, they would end up together. Now that we've found that lovely nugget of information, let's go find some more in our five fantastic finds. Number one. One of the most tragic things that can happen to anyone is losing a loved one. It can feel difficult to move on without them. But when Cavellu died, Hiku decided to skip the normal process of dealing with his grief, emotions, and overall the ramifications of death. Instead, he booked a trip to the underworld to rescue his crazy girlfriend. It's easy to see the appeal of this trope. You get a tragic death of a character, then you get an epic noble fetch quest for your hero. But these rescues are never straightforward. For Hiku, this was a real stealth mission, and his main challenge was blending in with the shades and bringing back the reluctant soul of Kavelu. But often there will be a unique criteria to escape the underworld safely. Sometimes it's outright trials from the ruler of the dead. Sometimes the underworld itself just works to keep from the dead from leaving. Taking a look at Greek mythology, we can see when Orpheus tried to rescue Eurydice. His trial was that she could follow him out of the underworld, but was never to look back at her to see her, or she would never be able to leave. Though and behold, right before he is about to exit the underworld, he turns back to see her, and he sees her hideous decaying body. And with that, she is banished once more to the underworld. Another example of this is the Sumerian myth of Inanna, the queen of heaven and her sister, Erishkigal, the queen of the dead. Inanna is more commonly known as one with the goddess Ishtar, following the Akkadian Empire, as seen in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Number two. Lua'omilu is not always an underground synonymous with Hades, where all the spirits of the dead go. In some stories, there is also Wakia, a place of light, and Milu, a place of darkness. Going into Milu is almost always referenced as taking a leap into misery, which would explain how a celebrated princess raised by a priestess would end up in the dark place following her death. In our story, and several variations of it, the overall location is in the sea, as we discussed to great extents. But, according to more native accounts, there is an entrance in Waipeo Valley that has since been covered in sand. Every year, there's a procession of ghosts called the Night Marchers that are seen marching down the Mahiki Road to ancient burial sites, battlefields, or to Lua'omilu. If you see any of these warriors, you will die violently unless you are a relative of the warriors. So stay clear. Number three. While Cavello is very much human, and while her lover Hiku appears human, he is far from it. He is actually a kapua. In Hawaiian mythology, the kapua are often compared to being gods or demigods, as seen in Disney's Moana, where Maui is referred to as a demigod when actually he is a kapua. What, Disney not being accurate to their source material? Shocking, I know. <laughs> they are powerful beings, often appearing as monsters or other non-human bodies. Some kapua are also gods, further leading to this confusion. In those situations, the kapua would often have two bodies, a human one, another one that could be anything from an animal to a rock. Sadly, Besides the already mentioned Maui and Moana, there are not a ton of examples of kapua in modern media. 
Which is honestly a shame because you just know there are like three different Cinderella movies in the production right now and nobody seems to be noticing how interesting Kapua-centric stories could be. Number four. As we mentioned earlier, the story of Huku and Kavalu is seen in many variations, not just in Hawaiian storytelling, but in the great Polynesian oral tradition. The idea of a hero bringing his lover back from the underworld can be seen in the story called Hutu and Pari, told by Harriata of Waikato to Reverend Richard Taylor in 1866. This Maori story has the same six defining points as the three Hawaiian versions, with significantly more detail. In fact, Hiku is the Hawaiian version of Hutu's name. The transmission of the story from one area to the next is hard to define, and we really can't say which story came first. This mix, and this transmission, through storytelling is usually the product of trade or exploration, with oral storytelling having the benefit of being flexible to fit the different narratives needed. Storytelling was not used simply to recount history exactly as it was, but to legitimize the present. One major way this was done was through genealogical claims to the past, as was done by chiefs through their relationship with Hiku and Kavelu. And finally, number five. To get advantage on his stealth check, Hiku covered himself in a mixture of rancid coconut and kukui oil. Because of the mixture, he smelled so bad, everyone assumed he must be dead. I personally have never smelt rancid coconut, but I have family that have assured me it is quite terrible. But why this mixture? Surely there are a lot of bad smelling things to choose from. So why this combo? For starters, they would both be easily accessible. Assuming, of course, that this story started sometime after the Polynesians came to Hawaii. Because guess what? Coconuts are not actually native to the island. They only became a staple of the island after the Polynesians arrived. But since then, they have become a staple for islanders. Kukui nuts, also known as candle nuts, were used to provide light due to their high content of oil. And with that, they were able to help keep time. In the local language, kukui also meant enlightenment and represented wisdom and protection. Now, is it wise to cover yourself in flammable oil before going down to the underworld? Not totally sure, but it seemed to work out for Hiku in the end. Fox, we have gone to the underworld and back, and all I know now is that I need a shower, like, real bad. So, I think we better head on out. We didn't even come back with a loved one. I brought you, didn't I? Does it count if I went with you originally? That's just what you think happened. Uh, I got a story to tell you later on. Oof, you're not going to like it. Well, thank you so much, dear travelers, for listening to our tale. If you want to hear more from us and find out what our next tale will be, come join us anytime on Twitter at From Enchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchant Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at Tales from the Enchant Forest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions, so if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. Thank you so much, travelers. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest.